This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. All right, Yaron, this has been a long conversation in the works. I feel like I messaged you in September or something. I was like, hey, let's get you on the podcast. And you're like, hey, I'm super busy, but let's follow back. And here we are and we're doing it. So we're giving the people what they want because I feel like someone mentioned that on Twitter. They said, hey, get your own on the podcast. And here we are. We're making it happen. So for those that don't know you, uh, and this is kind of our first time talking face to face over over Zoom, um, you know, who is your own and how did you get started investing? Um, so, yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, glad we could hopefully we give the people what they want. Um, and glad we can make this happen. Um, so Yaron is, uh, I'm the portfolio manager of a fund called uh, One Main Capital. I started One Main Capital in early 2018. Um, before my time in One Main Capital, I spent um, around a decade in investing roles, uh, both in private equity as well as um, public market equity funds, so hedge funds. Um, my interest in business really stemmed from like a really young age. I grew up to my, my parents um, moved to the States a few years before I was born. So I'm first generation American. Um, they, um, they had, they worked as, you know, for someone else. And then my dad saved some money and, and, uh, and went to go sell electronics at the local flea market down in Miami and kind of started his own little business from that. Um, and eventually he opened a few retail stores selling stuff to tourists, you know, t-shirts, mugs, towels. And so like, I was always surrounded by him who was a small business owner. Um, and he had friends who had larger, more successful businesses. And so I was surrounded by business from a very young age, knew I always wanted to get into business and investing. And, and so in early 2018, um, when the last fund I was at shut down, it felt like the right time to kind of take that shot. So, um, I've been in business around three years and, uh, it's been a fun ride. So that's kind of what I'm doing full time right now. So before that, you said um, you spent some time at City, and then you also did Altalis Capital, if I'm saying that correctly. Yeah, so I was uh, I spent uh, two years at City in their left fin group. Um, joined in 2008, thinking I was going to be working on uh, LBO financings, but a few months after I joined, um, Lehman Brothers collapsed and the financial crisis began. And uh, there weren't there weren't many LBOs to be financing, so um, we we spent a lot of time uh, working on bankruptcy financings, dip loans, and the likes. I learned a lot about the restructuring process. Learned a lot about how to read credit agreements, and um, it was a really interesting process. Um, and then from there, I moved to a firm called HIG Capital. Um, had always wanted to move to an investing role, um, and and thought a good place to start. Uh, the career in investing would be in, in private equity, which has more of a control uh, position in the companies we invest in, obviously. Um, and I thought that would be a great place to learn how to diligence businesses, do a deep dive, because when you buy something as a private equity firm, you can't sell it unlike public markets. So you really have to know what you own. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you also get to be in the boardroom when the really frank conversations are happening. You know, public market investors, 
hear a very refined narrative and message that the board and management team choose to deliver to public equity holders. But if you're sitting in the room, sometimes you hear the reality and you, you can notice that the reality doesn't always jive with the narrative. And so um, private equity is a great place to get that experience, um, both on the, on the diligence front as well as just being behind the scenes when decisions are being made. So um, spent about three years at HIG Capital, mid-market private equity firm, um, great, great track record, really, really smart guys. Uh, they do great deals. And then moved over to Altalis. Yeah, Altalis was, um, was a startup, long, short equity fund. I joined pre-launch. Um, the founders, um, they ran the North American equities business at a larger firm called Taconic. And it was great um, joining pre-launch. You know, I was, I was there from day, day's negative one when we were, you know, building the, the portfolio, you know, talking and being involved in all the conversations that related to portfolio construction and risk management and position sizing and all the like. So mm -hmm. it was a great, it was a great learning experience. So what were some of the biggest lessons you learned from starting at a, we'll call it ground negative one, you know, day, day negative one that you might not have gained had you done a more traditional route where, you know, doing at these Goldman Sachs, you know, investment banks, and then going straight from there to starting your own shop? Yeah, I think um, for one, I just saw what it takes to build a portfolio and what to build, what it takes to build a business, you know, from a um, back office perspective, from a portfolio construction perspective, um, all the risk management conversations. Again, I was involved in all those. Um, what, the biggest, the biggest takeaway I got at Altalis, I think, was um, we spent a lot of time um, valuing each business in the portfolio and each business we wanted to invest in completely on a DCF basis. Um, in mm -hmm. private equity, we spent we spent a lot of time understanding our businesses and how they compare to their competition. And you look at public comps and private transactions values, and and a lot of transactions are done on an EBITDA multiple basis. And and at Altalis, we were like, okay, each business, let's assume that there's no public comp. What would we pay for it? And DCFs are obviously very sensitive to all the assumptions, you know, whether it's discount rate, terminal growth, um, terminal margins, revenue growth through today and whenever your terminal year is. And so I think when you practice a lot on how those marginal changes impact your DCF value, I think you get a really good sense on how to value businesses and what the multiples mean under certain scenarios. Cause, cause at the end of the day, you compare your DCF value to the current multiple and the comp multiple. And you, you know, you, you kind of get a good kind of gut check on like what certain multiples mean for certain types of businesses um, and how DCF it changes in DCF impact those multiples. So that was a great learning experience. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I just think the portfolio construction process from day one was really helpful to kind of see how, how we did that. Now, when you say portfolio construction, I'm thinking in my head, you've got this pool of capital, call it $100,000. And from day one, you're trying to decide, okay, we're going to put 20000 here, 15000 here, 30000 there. What What's that conversation like? Is it just ranking your names and then, you know, choosing the highest allocation to your best name or how do you go about deciphering that day one portfolio allocation? Yeah. I mean, the reality is you, you want to put your capital in the ideas that have the best risk reward. Um, the ideas that have the best risk reward, I think are um, determined by what you think the upside is if you're right. Um, and, and what the likelihood is that you think you're right. Um, and so 
obviously there's a lot of other things that go into the decision of how to size things and what to put on, you know, what the odds are that you're wrong and what the downside is when you're wrong is a big part of it. You know, how wrong could you be on your earnings estimates, how much financial leverage, how much operating leverage is in the business. Um, but also you're thinking about things like how exposed am I to interest rates? How exposed am I to moves in certain commodity prices and, and so in valuations for, you know, people like to talk about growth and value. And now there's this whole saying that like every, everything should be a value investment, whether it's a high multiple or a low multiple stock. But the reality is there are different factors um, that, that can act in different ways. And I, I think it's, it's, it's smart not to have too much exposure to any one of those factors in your portfolio, unless you're, you're making a very cognizant bet that you want to bet on that factor specifically. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of times if you're working at a fund that has already figured those things out and you join and you kind of just jump into the fray, you don't realize like the thought process that went into that. And, and you might, you might take for granted how the portfolio acts under certain conditions and not realize that a lot of times that's either learned by the portfolio manager over time or refined and the like. So, um, I think it was a great, great experience to be there from day one. And, um, and yeah, I mean, there were a lot of conversations with, you know, what kind of investors we want, um, what kind of tilt we want the portfolio to have. And all those conversations are super helpful. Do you have any glaring portfolio construction errors, whether that's in not sizing a position big enough? That's something that Alex Knight and Matt Garops really struggled with this year was not sizing appropriately our winners or the... I'm trying not to do resulting here, but not sizing the companies we thought were going to be our big winners, not sizing those appropriately. Do you have any stories like that that have influenced the way you think about portfolio construction? Um, yeah, I mean, everyone has their war stories of errors of omission and commission. And um, I would say my, I've, made, I've made mistakes not sizing things the way I probably should be sized, um, probably more for short-term reasons than for long-term reasons, which always hurts. Um, mm -hmm. I think everyone had a little bit of that during COVID, you know, what if a second wave comes instead of thinking, you know, it doesn't matter whether a second wave comes, if they have the balance sheet to withstand the second wave and over right. a, and over a three year basis, the stock should be up a lot, regardless of what happens with the second wave. Pro, you know, I probably should have had more full size positions instead of medium. You know, I have the way I think about position sizing is full three quarters, half or a quarter really is the way I think about it. Okay. And I had, some, I had some positions that probably should have been full and ended up being half or three quarters. Um, and so those are mistakes that, you know, you live with. Uh, you could always look back and say, oh, like this was the wrong decision. I should have been more aggressive. But the reality is, I think um, for me, especially when, when I'm positioned in a way where I'm more comfortable with my sizing, I tend to make more rational and better decisions for the portfolio mm -hmm. as a whole. So yeah. if I have one position blow up and I'm comfortable with the way the rest of the portfolio is positioned, I just think about that one position that's blowing up way more rationally. And so it's just important for me not to put myself in a situation where there's, you know, excessive vol in the portfolio that kind of makes me not be able to think rationally in periods of stress. So, um, I mean, I've made a, plenty of other mistakes. I've, I've sold positions for the wrong reasons. Um, I was very proud of myself. I, I had a position in Expel early in the fund's life. Um, and I, I made good money on it. And there was a quarter a few years ago where, um, you know, they were growing every quarter significantly year over year for a very long period of time. They were on an earnings call where they said, um, 
you know, in the middle of the call, they put up a good print in the middle of the call. They said, and next quarter we expect revenue. I forgot whether it's like flat or down sequentially. Uh, they had some issue in China with some distributor and the stock was up nicely on the day when they said that. And I was like, whoa, like you guys are going to go <laughs> negative. Like, and I, I sold out of it um, while it was still up on the day. It ended up closing the day down pretty meaningfully. And I felt so proud of myself that day. And I, you know, I told myself that, um, you know, I spoke to the company afterwards and I spoke to people who spoke to the company and they had a very good explanation for why there was, this was a temporary hiccup. And uh, I was like, all right, when I, let me see one quarter of proof. And when I see one quarter of proof, I'm going to put the position right back on and um, things, things normalized. And obviously the stock was a little bit higher by then. And I was like, yeah. all right, I'm going to wait for a pullback and you know, right. the, the rest is history. So yeah. um, I've sold things for the wrong reasons. Um, you know, there was a little bit of uncertainty, but if I really step back and think that the core thesis change, do I think people aren't going to want this product going forward? The answer probably would have been no. And so did I need to get out of the position entirely? Probably not. Um, but I'll take those mistakes where, you know, foregone upside all day. I think um, if I can avoid the blowups and, uh, and, 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 and incurring significant losses in the portfolio. But, but yeah, I mean, I have my errors of not sizing things appropriately, of getting out for the wrong reasons. And our job as portfolio managers and investors is to just constantly learn and refine our process over time and not continue to repeat the same mistakes over and over. And, that's my, that's my hope and goal that I can do that over time. So that's, you bring up an interesting topic on waiting for not only confirmation, but then disconfirming evidence that you were wrong in selling and that you'll get back in. I wonder, how do you determine what that time frame is? Is it just one extra quarter? Because something that I think a lot of value investors struggle with when they view this as a long time frame is, okay, you know, we're thinking in three to five years, but if one quarter does bad, then all of a sudden we're like, okay, we got to think, is this a long, you know, is this a structural issue or is this, you know, some short-term issue? So do you give it just that next quarter? Then how do you determine based on the error, how long to wait to see a reversal in numbers? Does that, does that make sense? Because it's something I struggle yeah, with. No, no, that makes sense. I think like the point you bring up is, is kind of, it's, it's, it really kind of explains why it's so important to understand the product or service yeah. that a company you're invested in delivers because if you really believe in the product or service and you have a good understanding of the marketplace and what the demand drivers are, um, I think you're better prepared to withstand those periods where something might not go exactly as you expected. And the reality is I spoke to expel dealers um, and I spoke to, to car dealerships and franchise dealers who, who installed expel and domestically at least. And, um, and there was no worry on the domestic front. I mean, this was, if, if you just kind of step back and oh, this, is a, this is a secular growth story, over three to five years, more and more people are going to want to have their cars wrapped. I believe that um, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a fairly consolidated market in terms of competition. Expel is far and away the best brand. They have premium pricing. They have the best service capabilities for um, their, their installers. And so if I just step back and I was like, look, even if China, there is something competitive going on there, which at the time it was unclear whether there was, the long-term thesis for the US and Europe and Canada really hadn't changed, even with the numbers they reported. And yeah. so and so I probably could have held on and said, okay, the long-term thesis hasn't changed. The valuation is still compelling, even ex-China. Like I don't need to freak out about a one about a China quarter. Um, and, and you know, hopefully what they say proves out. 
But if not, I'm still very confident and convicted in, in their North American, Canada, and European business. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I didn't do that. And the stock is probably up, you know, six, seven X since then. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think you want to know how high it's gone since you've sold. <laughs> yeah, I haven't, I haven't looked at the stock chart. I mean, I, I think it's Smart. up a lot. I know it's up a lot, but I haven't looked at the stock chart since probably like 30 or 40 bucks. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I would say that I'm pretty confident that most of my core positions in the portfolio right now, I would not make that same mistake with, I know, right. I, I, I know everything I own. I know the businesses very well. I know the products and services very well. I know the competitive positioning of the companies very well. And I, and I monitor them, you know, all the, all these trends intra quarter. And so yep. I'm typically not that thrown off by what I read on an earnings print or what I hear on an mm-hmm. earnings call that just, it threw me for a loop and, yeah. you know, I, I sold for the wrong reason. So it's a, it's, right. a, it's a lesson we all have to learn sometimes. And hopefully we just don't repeat them too many times. Going back to going back to position size. And I wonder, obviously hindsight's 2020, but I wonder what it would have done mentally for you just to sell half. Or if you have something like that come up again, where it's like, you know what? I think everything's intact, but just to be sure, just going to take off something off the top. That way you almost get the, you know, heads I win, tails I don't lose that much. Where if it does have a bad quarter and then it has another bad quarter, you say, oh, well, this is good. I sold off half when it was at the first bad quarter. Now I've got, you know, half my position. And then if it does well, you can say, oh, well, I've still got half my position. I can look to add off of that base. Yeah, I, I think that's probably a smart, and especially if it's a if it's a full size position and you sell half yeah. and turn it into a half size position, you're still gonna have the upside if you're right on the business and you're not gonna kill yourself if you made it for making a rash decision. Um, I think um, one of the things I've gotten better at over time, even exit spell, is making marginal changes to position sizes instead of abs- you know absolute changes to position sizes. So instead of going from half to a whole. Um, I, sometimes I trim, I add, but I don't, I don't make, I don't swing around position sizing as much as I used to. Isn't it amazing how we have that luxury now where there's zero transactional costs? Like I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't imagine running a strategy where you're like, Oh, I'll take, you know, buy 10% here, buy 10% there, buy 10, you know, back when trades were 25, yeah. $50 a pop. Yeah. Well, for me, it's not even about transaction costs as much as it is tax efficiency and time. efficiency. Right. You know, my time is better spent. Um, rather if I'm going to be trading, all day, I'm not going to be spending time diligencing the businesses in my portfolio as well as new opportunities. And that's really where I could add a lot of value over time is finding businesses, you know, un- uncovering businesses that are attractively valued and can grow over a long period of time. Um, and so an attack and from a tax efficiency standpoint, it's really not efficient to buy and sell and buy and sell. Obviously, you're rewarded yeah. for having long term capital gains um, if you're a taxable investor, which many of my partners are. So. Um, yeah, I think return on time and, and tax efficiency alone, if not transactions costs as well. What was the point in your professional investing life where you thought, I'm going to take the leap, I'm going to start one main capital? Walk us through that. Um, yeah, so the last fund I was at shut down in early 2018. Um, I was trying to figure out at that point what to do next. Um, I always had the entrepreneurial bug. I've always wanted to start my own business and, and have my own track record and see how I can perform because I'm very competitive and I think I'm very smart. I think I'm a good business analyst. And so I, I wanted to do that. I wanted to start my own business. Um, it's very scary starting a fund 
when you're what people consider to be subscale. Um, I think it's easier for guys who have, you know, the pedigree if they went to an Ivy League school and then worked at like a very well-known Tiger Cub and um, get the backing of, you know, that Tiger Cub or something like that. And they launch all of a sudden with 500 million or a billion dollars. And, you know, they're, they're at, it's a startup, but they're really launching a, a business that already has the infrastructure and the scale. Right. Um, right. A lot of people in the industry just shun on or, and think it's not worth your time and it's impossible to start subscale and I'll call subscale anything. I don't know, sub 50 million of AUM. Um, and so I asked a lot of people have, that I respect for their opinion, um, mentors, colleagues, friends in the industry. And I will say most people said, don't do it. Um, you know, you're in your mm. prime earning years. You're a smart guy. You can find, you can land in a good seat. You can make good money. Like why put yourself in this position where you're probably not going to make good income for years and you're probably going to fail because you can't invest in the infrastructure that it's a chicken and the egg problem, right? Like no institutions want to invest in managers that don't have a CFO and a trader and an analyst and a nice office space, but you can't get all those things unless you have big institutional investors. Yep. And so a lot of, a lot of people think that chicken and egg problem can't be solved and it's not worth it. I spoke to a few people um, who said, listen, I've done it or I know someone who's done it. The trick to doing it when you start that small is don't get ahead of yourself. You know, Don't invest ahead of the assets that can support those investments because if you start small and you keep your expense base small and you stay scrappy, you can give yourself a runway. And a runway is all you need. It gives you optionality because if you put up good performance over three, four, five, six years, like money will find you if you're a good manager, which I, yeah. I totally believe that I am. And so the trick is to put yourself in a position where you could survive that long. And the only way to do that is to keep your expenses low. So, um, you know, I, I was on a Zoom call with um, a very well-known hedge fund manager who runs a multi-billion dollar fund who started with like 2 million bucks of friend and family money. And he's like, you know, he was on with another guy who started a fund as well, who started at a bigger scale. And that guy was like, no, there's no way you could start a fund subscale now. And the guy who did it was like, you can, you just need to be scrappy. Like you yeah. don't need to layer on all these expenses. So, so I got, I got that feedback from a few people that had done it and said it's doable. And, um, and I want, I believed in myself, you know, even though they told me that I, that's kind of what the answer I wanted to hear. And, yeah. um, and I believed in myself, my uh, girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, was super supportive of it as well. And, um, you know, I had some money saved up. I was in a position where I knew I wasn't going to starve if it didn't work out. I could always go get a job down the line if it didn't work out. But I believe that it will work out. I'm an optimist. And um, it's been a fun three years. And we're starting to get momentum on the marketing side. You know, the first two and a half years um, of running the business, I really just put my head down didn't market at all, just focused on putting up decent numbers. And, um, you know, about four or five months ago, I, I brought someone on to help with uh, marketing and operations. And he started setting up meetings with potential investors and those conversations are going well. So uh, fingers crossed in the next year, hopefully uh, I start to kind of hit that escape velocity. That's awesome. Now, did you deal with any imposter syndrome at the beginning when trying to start this? I mean, I know you've got a really solid background, but I feel like there's always just that little bit of like, can you do this? Like, are you good enough in quote, good enough to manage other people's money? Yeah. I mean, 
like anyone who's going to be a good investor over time has to have a sense of absolute confidence in themselves, but also a little bit of a, you know, they need to be humble and to some degree an ability to kind of self-reflect and think, what if I'm wrong? What if this doesn't go as planned? And so like, I think you need both of those things to be successful. So the part of me that's confident and believes in myself was like, I'm taking this shot because I think right. I'm smart and I'm going to make yeah. it work. But the part of me that's constantly reevaluating my positions and re-underwriting and making sure I didn't miss anything was like, look, there is a shot that you fail. And if you fail with friend and family and you know a few of my former bosses that I reported to gave me some capital, if you fail with other people's capital and you give up, you know, opportunity cost of being at a good seat during that time and making, you know, uh, industry level compensation over that period of time, like it would suck. Um, you weigh those two things against them, each other. And uh, my decision was to go for it. I think my belief in myself, um, my belief in myself overpowered my doubt in myself. Um, but yeah, look at the beginning, it, I was a one man shop uh, on the investment side, as well as on the ops and administrative side. Um, I was working out of a WeWork. Um, so I saw people, but they weren't people I, you know, I'm, I'm used to talking to that can talk the lingo. Like I was working at a WeWork um, and there were people sitting next to me who like saw my interactive brokers account open <laughs> and they were like, they were like, Hey, like this iRobot is down 15% today because Amazon announced <laughs> this. Like, what do you think? And I'm like, I, I don't, I, I don't follow iRobot that closely. And they're like, should I buy this? I'm like, I'm like, look, that's, that's not what I'm here to do right now. Yep. Um, so just from an industry industry standpoint, like it was a little bit lonely. Obviously I still talk to all my colleagues and friends who work, you know, in different investing roles. So like I have those conversations, but it's not the same camaraderie as like your colleague, you're in the office grabbing coffee together. And, um, and yeah, the, the fear, the, the fear and the doubt of failure is, is real until you start putting up numbers. So, um, I'm glad I got past that part of it. It's funny. You mentioned that as soon as someone sees like, whether it's an interactive broker's account or you're just chatting and they find out that you're an investor, or you analyze businesses. The first thing that always comes to mind when people, at least when I am in these conversations is, Oh, well, I've got this stock. And then they just send me the ticker and they're like, God, oh, this thing's a hot buy. I saw it on mad money. And I'm like, I just face palm like <laughs> yeah yeah it's crazy I mean, it's not I, exactly um, that i get it all well i'm sure everyone gets it a lot more now than now that you know Robin oh my Hood gosh and, and with whole, uh tiktok thing, yeah. tiktok investors do you do yeah. you follow that account that is yeah. incredible oh okay well you got to follow tiktok investors because it's it's these like uh what i mean just teenagers basically uh saying how easy it is you just buy tesla just buy virgin galactic and ride the coattails of Kathy Wood and you're good. So easy. So easy. Yeah. I work out, um, with some buddies outside of this park by our apartment. And, um, we were talking about, my buddies were asking me like, how are, how are things going to work? And someone who was working out at the park, probably like 20 feet away from us overheard them asking me that. And he's like, Hey, I, I bought this Moderna stock. I like put all my, all my cash into it back when they announced like the vaccine trial before the results even came out, just when they announced that they like were going into like a phase three or an accelerated yeah. phase three or whatever. He's like, but now it's down like 15%. What do I do? I'm like, <laughs> I, I literally can't give you investment advice on having a hundred percent of your cash in Moderna. I have no view yeah. on it. Um, yeah. But I, I'm getting that more and more as well. So, <laughs> so on, on, on Moderna, 
I almost sent out a tweet calling a calling a market top just 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 in jest. My mom texted me and she never never texts me about stocks or investing or anything ever. And she sends me a CNBC link about Moderna going to trial with the COVID with with, with the COVID vaccine. She goes, "Hey, how can I invest in Moderna? They're doing the COVID thing." And I, I, I just like sent a laughing emoji and I said, "Mom, that's already priced in." And she said, "Already priced in? They haven't done it yet." And so then I had to, so then then I had to, then I had to kind of tell her about that. But it's it's just so fascinating the world we live in. Yeah, sign of the times. It's like buying Budweiser stock ahead of the Super Bowl, you know. Yep. They're going to be very busy. They're going to have a very busy weekend and Super Bowl weekend. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's we laugh about it, but it's a little bit scary to think that there are people who were making major financial decisions in terms of where to deploy their savings, a significant portion of their wealth based on, you know, these variables that have nothing to do with the long term value of a company. And it's working now. And like, maybe this time is different and it'll just keep working into perpetuity from here, but like most likely it won't. And um, it just sucks seeing these people that eventually will end up holding the bag or could end up holding the bag. It's like, I know you made a lot of money. Just take some of it out right now. And they're like, yeah. nah, nah, it's, it's always, it's always, it's always those people that bought Tesla and they're like, today I'm all right, some guys like today I'm retiring at 39 and no, I'm not selling a single share. Yeah. Okay. It's like, I'm just going to borrow against my shares because yeah. they're never going down in value. So like, why would I pay tax on that? It's uh, actually funny. And it, it, it kind of brings to this meta conversation. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, we're, we're, we're going down kind of a different rabbit hole than I actually thought we would, we would go down, but it brings me up to this thought that I feel like the TikTok investors and, you know, all those people on, you know, Robin hood and wall street bets, they're filling that void of a lack of solid investing education out there not only education that's informative right because you can have oswald damadorian you can literally take his class for free and that's probably the best education you can get on valuation and how to understand those types of metrics you can also you know take online classes like mobison's class i think at, at columbia business school he's doing you know online now but it's not entertaining enough and I think that's where that gap is. And that's why you're seeing these TikTok investors come in and have such a huge uh, oh, impact. reach. It's crazy. Reach yeah. Because crazy. there's not that. Fun. Yeah, exactly. Making, that's exactly yeah, what they're, they're doing. Um, I, I mean, look, I graduated from school about 13 years ago um, from college. My college buddies who are all very successful in their own fields. We have dentists, we have lawyers in there. We have doctors in my group chat, like my fantasy football group chat, like we're at, we've been on the same chat for 15 years and never once in the last, we all, we didn't also go to college together. We also went to high school together. So we've been wow. in middle school. So like, so we've been friends forever. Yeah. And never once since I've known them had they started talking about the stock market until <laughs> probably like six or seven months ago. And they're, they're using all the funny terms from like wall street bets and it's entertaining for them. They want to make money, but it's also entertainment. It's funny. Um, so, and, and look, it's, it's working for the time being. What's fun is working, you know, yep. squeezing shorts, the attendees, um, <laughs> using the call options. Like it's fun. It's working for them, buying SPACs, um, buying Tesla. Yep. Um, and so as long as it keeps working, they'll keep making money and, and, and seeing it as entertainment. Um, who knows when it's going to stop.
Yeah, who know who knows when the music stops? But you know, that's yeah. that. I guess I guess that's not really our job. But speaking of uh, financial Twitter, there's two names that you and I have have crossed paths on, and I'm not a shareholder of either of these names uh, as of now. That might actually prove to be a mistake um, going going forward, which is something I've 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 wrestled with. But the two names are Collectors Universe CLCT and then N Labs nlab and the common thread that holds these two together is that they had some agreements or some buyout offers recently that for you know long story short probably not the most accretive thing for minority shareholders especially in nlab's case um i think i'm a little bit closer to the situation than i am on collector's universe because i just i just don't know as much there but walk us through those two offers, I know. I don't know if you're a shareholder in either of those. If 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 you can let us know, but walk us through kind of what happened there and where the situation stands now. Yeah, so um, I'm a shareholder of both. Um, they're both unfortunate situations for for different reasons. Um, the first one is collectors, which they they do um, authentication and grading of co- collectible items like uh, trading cards, coins. Um, and they had, um, another fund that I've, that I respect a ton go act, they run an activist campaign, uh, against them earlier this year. They, um, they were just mismanaging the business, um, for a very long period of time. They were paying a dividend. Um, they weren't investing to expand their capacity when the demand for their services was clearly exceeding their capacity to deliver against that demand. And so the management team just didn't own a lot of stock. The board didn't own a lot of stock. And so um, this activist came and, and ran a proxy, threatened to run a proxy contest to replace um, the board. And, um, and, and, and so that board would have oversight over the management team so that they would make the right investments over time. And um, they ended up settling with the board to put a few, a few of their nominees on, onto the board, but didn't take over the whole board. Um, Within a few quarters of that, the company had already started making investments to accelerate its capacity. So it started to deliver against uh, this accelerating demand. They took some price increases and those price increases and and increased capacity flowed to the bottom line at a very nice rate. So Mm -hmm. you have this huge backlog of demand, ton of visibility over the next few years um, and and margins that are just starting to expand. And... um, there's a little bit of a mania going on in like the collectible space right now, as you know, oh, like yeah. it's, 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 it's getting caught up in the same Bitcoin and stock mania. Like there are, are baseball and basketball cards that are selling for like two, three, four million bucks. Um, collectors ha- ha- probably has the ability to uh, create an online marketplace. So they're grading these cards, authenticating them. Um, they probably have the best data on what, who's buying these cards, how much they're willing to pay, what they're worth. And so if you make a third party marketplace, think like a stub hub of, of trading cards, right? Where people can buy and sell these trading cards. And even if you take like a 5% commission or take rate on all the transactions that go through your platform, like that could be a huge revenue stream at very high incremental margins. So like there's right. that opportunity. And, um, and so they started to deliver against all this stuff. The stock went out from like the mid twenties to like yep. the high, the high sixties. Yeah. And, um, and next thing you know, the company announces that they're selling for a small premium. Um, they're selling to what appears to be a strategic buyer. Um, it's an owner of a major league baseball team. Is kind of the guy who's who's the it seems like is the core equity sponsor. Um, and is that Steve Cohen? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the Mets. 
Yeah, exactly. Owner of the minutes. I try to avoid using names publicly about people, especially if like I'm saying that they're trying to steal a company, but yeah, Steve Cohen. But Hey, um, as long as I said it first, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so uh, the, the proxy materials came out and it's very clear that this is kind of like a take under. It's very clear that based on the projections that management put out that they think they could execute against over the next three, four, five years, right? The business is being sold at a hugely discounted value to those cash flows and earnings. Um, those earnings are probably conservative and understated. They don't give credit for that marketplace. And when you read about the process that went on to get to this, you know, takeout, um, it was a very, very bad process. It was run by, I want to say a second or third tier investment bank. Um, they, um, in the background section of the proxy materials, um, a lot of times you can kind of read like how this transaction came to be. Companies have to disclose that. Yeah. And so um, they, they went back as far as a few years ago when they tried selling the company. And they went out at that point when they tried selling the company a few years ago, they went out to like 200 bidders. Um, and this time they basically didn't go out to anyone. They just engaged with the one person who reached out to the company and said, I want to buy you guys. That person who reached out and said, I want to buy you guys, didn't have the financial wherewithal to complete the acquisition. He asked the company for permission to try to go round up some equity sponsors, which is where Steve Cohen and another big hedge fund got involved. Got and um, someone else came to the company and said, hey, I heard that you're selling. I want to try to buy the company too. And they were like, no, you don't have the financial wherewithal. So like you can't make a bid. But they literally just let someone else who didn't have the financial wherewithal go find equity sponsors, but they yeah, wouldn't let this, they would, they wouldn't let this other guy, they just like, no, you're, you're not a credible bidder. And so they, it was a non, it was a, not a competitive process clearly. Um, and I think the read is that the board and management don't own that much stock. Yep. Um, and if the management team knows that they don't own that much stock, when this transaction closes, whatever they do own, will immediately vest and they'll get paid out on it. Plus the people who are buying the company are going to give them a new equity package. Hmm. They want that equity package to be struck at as low a valuation as possible, right? Yeah. Because if you're getting a new option package, you want it at a low valuation. So you end up owning a very percentage of the company on the way out. And so it's, it's really not in your best interest to try to get the best price for the company at that point. You want to kind of cash out what you got and get a bigger option package in the company at a lower valuation. Yep. Um, what did I do when I saw that? I don't know. It's, it's frustrating. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't a very big position for me, um, but it's frustrating. I reached out to um, other shareholders um, and people who weren't shareholders who I was just saying, Hey, you should take a look at this because it's trading at or slightly below the takeout price. And yeah. I think there's a shot that, you know, a, a new bidder emerges here. And even if not, I think there's a shot they might not get the deal done because you need to get 50% of the vote plus one share to get the deal mm -hmm. done here. Um, I was, a, I thought there was a shot they might not get the 50% plus one. So I just was like, hey, you should take a look at this. There's a shot you get a bump. I don't think you lose that much money if, um, if the deal closes. If you're buying it slightly above 75, 25, or even slightly below, there's no shot you're going to lose money. So just time value of money and, and exposure. Um, but yeah, I'm not at the size where I can like buy up a ton of shares and pull a car like on and take yeah. it to court. Like, <laughs> like when Dell back in 2013, when, when Michael Dell was trying to like steal Dell, 
Carl Icahn went out and bought like a billion dollars worth of stock or something. And took what a power and, move. Could you imagine that? Could you yeah, imagine doing that? Yeah. And he took them to court. There's something called appraisal rights. You can literally go to Delaware and sue them in court and say, no, the value you're, you're paying for these shares is not enough. And I'm going to sue you to have a third party come up with a fair value. And that's what you have to pay me. So um, I'm not at the size where I could do that kind of stuff yet. It's for me, it's kind of, I mean, it's important to be involved in situations where you trust management for that reason, because yeah. there's nothing worse than being right on a business, but having management somehow steal the upside away from you or destroy right. that or destroy that upside by making bad capital allocation decisions. So yeah. it kind of, it just continues to reinforce every time I get involved in a situation where management is either a B management team or they're just not aligned. I, there's always a lesson or the, for the most part, there's usually a lesson to take away, which is it's why it's important to get involved with management teams that are aligned with you. Um, and that's why the activist emerged initially here in the first place. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an interesting situation. It's supposed to close next week. If it closes, we'll find out if they have the votes. Um, it'll be interesting to observe right now. Interestingly, it's trading like probably two, close to two bucks above the tender price. So, um, that suggests that that suggests that people don't think that this is enough and it's going to require a bump to get done, but we'll see. So what do you think eventually happens? I mean, I don't know how much you can say about your opinion on this thing, but what, where, yeah, like if, could, if, if you had I to- can say my opinion, it's not investment advice. Um, yeah. I think, look, I think um, as of a week ago, I was trading slightly over the tender price of 75.25. At that point, I was like, it's probably 50, 50. Um, yeah. I think like if another bidder emerges, I think you could get into a bidding war here because this is a very strategic asset. I mean, just think like if Mark Cuban goes to LeBron James and he's like, Hey, right. let's, buy, let's buy this thing. And we could make trading cards are going to be huge. Like we could make this whole third party marketplace and we could blow this up just like Steve Cohen thinks he's going to do with his Mets or whatever he thinks his strategic vision is for the business. Like there yep. could be a bidding war here because clearly the business is worth a lot more just on the projections that management put out there without any additional, uh, you know, upside options. Um, but without a bidding war, I think it just comes down to whether they get the 50% plus one. If they get that, it closes at 75.25. If they don't get that, um, you know, maybe the, the bidding group says, okay, let's bump it to 80 and see if we can get the 50% plus one. Um, but if you, if you get another strategic buyer, I don't think you're stopping at 80. I think you're getting into the triple digits. I think if you don't get another buyer and it just doesn't get 50 point plus one because like the current holders are like, no, we're not tendering our shares here. It probably gets a bid to 80 and then they'll see if they can get the 50 plus one. And if they don't get it at 80, then maybe they go to 82.50 and see if they can get yeah. the 50% plus one. But clearly they're, they're trying to get the company for as low a valuation as possible. Right. Um, so seemingly in the blink of an eye, this happened to end labs. And if, I just, I just felt like on one, on like one day I was scrolling through Twitter, seeing all this collector's universe outrage. And another thing before, before we kind of close the book on that is the reason I loved collectors so much was that it had such a strong moat as being the S and P and Moody's of card rating. Like even if you built it's, 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 it's the whole Pat Dorsey thing where even if you built another card rating system, card authenticator system, that, collector's universe brand i think it's psa like that psa label yep. is 
is almost impossible to penetrate in terms of authentication than actual like legitimacy in the card, which then factors into the price that you end up selling that card for. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, if you're about to pay $3 million for a card or $2 million for a card, you want to make sure it's real and in the, con- yeah. the, stated, con- the stated condition. And you want the person who says it's real and in the state stated condition to have skin in the game and have a long history of doing this. Yep. And, um, and obviously someone who has the reputation that these guys have, they have more to lose if they get it wrong. Right. And they've been yep. doing it for longer. So they know what to look for. Um, yeah. it's, it's just, it's just a beautiful business, honestly. Yeah. It's a beautiful business. It's very cap light. Um, demand far exceeds capacity right now to deliver. They have pricing power and they have these op- this optionality on a marketplace potentially. Yeah. I had a buddy that was loading up on CLCT in the 16s and that's, one of the things that I really kick myself on <laughs> is not is not not following him into that. But let's let's go to N Labs now. So, kind of uh, elevator pitch us on how that went down. That one kind of pissed me off more because I thought the price was just a slap in the face to what N Lab could do over the next five years. Yeah, so that one it's a B two C business to consumer iGaming gaming company in the Baltics. Um, the same investor who. I heard about collectors through is the same one. I heard about this one through. Um, he has a good eye for these uh, businesses that do well and then get sold for no premium. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I woke up one morning and I saw um, that the stock was up a few percent. I don't even remember. It was like barely up. And I was like, hmm, I wonder if there's any news. And um, I saw the press release. Um, it was getting bought by an American, by a U.S. listed com- uh, iGaming company, and um, and yeah, I mean the press release said that the chairman of the company, who's a significant shareholder of N Labs, supported the deal. Um, they need to get ninety percent to get this one done, um, and this one confused me a little bit more because um, unlike collectors, which like demand far exceeds supply, no re- real regulatory. Uh, risks on the horizon that I could think of, um, yeah. where like it's clear business is going well and they're, and I don't really know what they're trying to do other than steal a company in this situation, I was thinking to myself, okay, maybe there's a regulatory risk. I don't know about that really worries management. Maybe their market share started taking a hit because there's a new competitor that entered their mark, their, their marketplace and is okay. being aggressive on promotions or whatever. So the first thought that came to my mind is like, okay, a line chairman owns a lot of stock, agrees to sell at such a low valuation. Um, he must know something I don't know. So my first thought was, let me reach out to the company and, sit and see if they'll speak to me. Um, I thought there was no shot they would speak to me because they just announced that they were selling the business. But I was like, hey, like you guys put out your Q4 preliminary numbers. Like, can I ask you a question about them? And I got on the phone with the CEO of the company and I was like, okay, great Q4 numbers. Like, is there anything that worries you about the the midterm outlook of the business, whether it's like right. 12, 18, 24 months? And he was like, no, like, I, feel as good, <laughs> I feel as good about the outlook of the business now as I've ever felt. I feel really good Wild. about the midterm outlook. And I was like, okay, well, there's nothing, there's literally nothing that like it really worries you that like you just haven't told us about or that just popped out of the blue. He's like, no, I'm like, then why are you guys selling the company at no premium? And he's like, look, I, I can't talk to you about that. Like if you, right. that's, a, that's a board decision. I'm just, I'm just, you know, the CEO of the business. I, I don't control the board. And so you need to speak to them about that if you have a question. 
but like, I'll just tell you, it's a little bit bittersweet for me because like I had a good vision on where we could take this. Yeah. And so that's another situation where I haven't sold my shares yet. I'm hoping that, you know, the fact that this is now for sale, other buyers emerge and try to top this bid. Um, but in the meantime, I, I'm not really treating it as exposure. You know, I, it's kind of a merger or play at this point. It's no longer a fundamental position for me. Yeah. Um, so for this one, I've done even less for collectors. I've like tweeted about it. I've, I've, uh, you know, shared what I found in the proxy materials with people of how absurd the sale process was and, and how, and, and I've shared my view that I think it's management trying to steal the company from shareholders yep. with N labs. I'm more confused. Cause I don't think yeah, this is the, the chairman is not trying to steal anything from shareholders. He's a big shareholder himself. So I'm a little bit confused. Maybe there's still something I don't fully appreciate, or maybe he just thought, look, we'll announce this and maybe other buyers will emerge. And if they do, that's great. And if not, yeah. I want to, I want to exit my position anyway. So yeah, um, maybe that was his thought. No strong, no strong view for me. Yeah. It's uh, this one, this one was just confusing. And you know what, you know, what's frustrating about both of these that probably gets talked about a lot, but maybe, maybe not enough is, the opportunity cost and then redeploying that capital because I'm sitting here, you know, and us at Macrops, we've got a pretty decent, decent sized position in N labs. And we had a, you know, I had a small position in CLCT at the time. It's like with N labs, now we have to redeploy that capital. I mean, luckily we were able to find ideas, but companies like N labs and companies like CLCT come don't around come often, around yeah. often. Exactly. And so it's, 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 it's almost, you know, it's, it's, it's more insulting in that aspect than it is the premium, I guess, because not only are you saying, you know, Hey, you know, minor, my minority shareholders were getting taken out for 1% premium. It's like, no, not only is it a 1% premium, but now you have to find out ways to allocate that better than what you thought you could get over the next three to five years by just keeping your money in NLAP. And uh, like the appreciation on both of those all happened with in a, in a shorter window than 12 months. So like yep. a lot of people who, who've been in this for six months have big gains that are about to get taxed at short, at short term rates. So that makes it a double whammy. You know, it's like not only do you need to go redeploy this capital, but you have less capital now to redeploy because you have to send a bunch of it to the government if you're a taxable investor. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I just, I just don't see enough people talking about how frustrating it is on one aspect with all these gains coming so fast where it's like now you have to you just got three to five years of returns pulled in six months you have to find another idea just like that that's not easy (laughs) (laughs) it's not easy but luckily luckily i'm talking to you and you've got a few ideas that are up your sleeve and we'll start with a start with a stock that's absolutely crushed it and it's uh rci hospitality ticker is rick this one's been a fin twit favorite i feel like um and you've kind of nailed this trade so how'd you how'd you first find the idea yeah so first of all it's now a fintwit favorite when i started buying it in early 2018 it was not a fintwit favorite um i was pitching it to everyone who would listen um nobody would listen and um i think a, a big part of why the stock has actually started to work lately is because more people on fintwit have gotten involved and i think they've they've bought up a decent chunk of the float that used to just be a trading sardine. I think this used to be a trading sardine. And I think now people see what I see, um, which is an incredible, an incredible business with a long reinvestment runway at a really cheap valuation with a great management team. Like 
it's very rare to find a combination of all those things, high quality business, cash generative, good management team, defensible, and the ability to redeploy that cash that they generate at high rates of return, all at a very low valuation. It's like check, 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 check. Um, I heard about the business initially when RCI um, bought a club. Um, First of all, for people who don't know what it is, um, RCI Hospitality, they operate, it's, they have two segments, but a majority of the business is is their club segment, which is gentlemen's clubs. Um, they have about three dozen of them across the country, um, primarily in major metropolitan areas. So like Miami, um, they have a bunch in Texas across the big cities there. They have New York City clubs, Chicago, Pittsburgh. So think big cities. Um that's a majority of the business. And they have this emerging restaurant concept called Bombshells. It's a sports, it's a sports restaurant bar concept. Um, and so uh, I initially heard of them when they bought a, a gentleman's club in Miami, which is where I'm from. Um, and my friends and I know the name of the place. It's kind of like a running joke in our chat of like, you know, who's going there tonight, even though none of us ever go. Um, <laughs> but um so the RCI bought them and I was like, hmm, I wonder what this company does. And I flipped through the, the investor presentation. I listened to a few earnings calls and I was like, wow, like this is a really good business. And this CEO sounds like he really has his act together in terms of capital hmm. allocation, capital deployment. Like normally you don't hear someone sound this good in terms of how they think about running their business when they're running a company that at the time was like $150 million market cap or something. So and what so, was he saying in particular? That made he you was think saying, that. Yeah, he was saying basically, so basically if you go back in time, um, the CEO of this company, um, he he's not like a Harvard educated, Harvard business school educated guy. He's like a school of hard knocks educated kind of guy. He, Got it. he took over this business, I think in the 90s. Um, he's built it over time. He's made mistakes along the way. But like importantly, he... He can explain why they were mistakes, what he learned from them and why he won't ever repeat them. And so like a lot of management teams can't admit that they made mistakes. If you ask them about something, they'll just be like, no, it was a, it was the right decision, even though it clearly wasn't. Yeah. He's not like that. He has a lot of skin in the game. He cares about the stock price. And and so in, in a, around 2015 or 2016, he had a, a big shareholder of his come to him and say, hey, you've kind of been like treading water on your stock price for a long period of time, like almost two decades. And we think you have this incredible business that generates a lot of cash at a low valuation. But like the reason your stock isn't working is because you're taking that cash and doing dumb things with it. It's generating cash, but you're doing dumb things with it. You're growing for, for growth's sake. Yeah. And we, we have a better idea for you. We have a better way forward. And similar to all these other lessons that he took away, like he's made bad acquisitions over time, whatever he's, he, he learned from these, the shareholder that he was making bad capital allocation decisions. Mm. He was trying to show growth, top line growth, just for the sake of top line growth. He wasn't growing free cash flow per share. Um, And so um, they told him, listen, you just need to do nothing. If you just, at this valuation, at this valuation, just do nothing. Let the cash pile up on your balance sheet and your stock will start to work. Like you're trading at a single digit free cash flow multiple. Right. You're not over, you're not over levered. You're generating a ton of cash. Just do nothing and watch your stock will start to go up. But if you want to do something, only do M&A 
if it generates attractive returns on the capital you're, you're deploying. Simple and those, enough, yeah. And, and yeah, simple enough. And the return profile of those acquisitions should be well in excess of your free cash flow yield because you should view your free cash flow yield as really your cost of equity. This is a low growth business. And so if you're trading at like a 15% free cash flow yield, you really should be looking to deploy your cash either in your own stock at that level or things that are going to return 20, 25, 30%, right? If you're doing new yeah. projects, acquisitions. Yeah. So he started talking. He's like, look, that makes sense to me. He read the book, The Outsiders, which that, that shareholder group gave to him. And he started talking the talk and he started walking the walk. He was buying back stock when it was cheap. He was doing smart acquisitions. Um, by the way, these acquisitions, like he really is the buyer of choice when it comes to consolidating this, this market. He has like three dozen clubs across the country. There's a few right. thousand, there's a few thousand clubs across the country, but they only want to buy clubs in big cities with strong population growth Makes and strong and strong employment metrics because like you yeah. don't want to buy a club in a dying city because the comms are just going to go negative, negative, negative. And so there's about 500 of these he wants to buy across the country out of a base of 36 or 37 today. And when it comes time to buy one of these, you can't control when the sellers want to sell. It's whenever they want to retire and monetize yeah. their business they've built. But when it comes time to buy them, really there's, there's two bidders who show up. One is typically RCI. And two are the management team who manage that club for the owner. And so you're looking at clubs that typically a club will do like, I don't know, 5 million in revenue at like 40% EBITDA margins. Um, yeah. So you're looking at like a, a few million bucks of EBITDA. And so you're looking at a purchase price that, you know, is high single digit millions at, on the low end up to like the club they bought in Miami that, that caught my attention initially was like a $25 million purchase because it was $6 million of EBITDA, the club. Um, so like the managers of the clubs, they can't buy these clubs for cash. They yeah. want to pay, they want to pay the owner with an IOU and it's not like a two year IOU. It's like a five or seven year IOU. Yep. And so the owner, the owner is deciding, okay, do I want to sell my club to RCI or do I want to sell it to the management team? And since there's only two buyers, the valuations are really low. It's not a competitive process. So like, do I get cash now or do I get an IOU later? It's pretty simple. You, by, by the way, by the way, even when RCI buys these clubs, they give them part of it in cash and part of it in IOU. Yeah. The, the IOU is actually a very smart thing that they do is they, um, they have the right to offset that IOU if there's any like legal claims that turn up over like a two year period post acquisition, like the club was doing something inappropriate, they weren't paying their taxes, they were getting sued by an employee or by a customer, they can offset any of those claims against the IOU. So like it's kind of a hedge for them as well. Right. But, but still, they buy these at really attractive valuations. And so you have a great runway to grow the business at three to four times EBITDA with no CapEx. So you're looking at like, you know, 33, 25 to 33% unlevered returns on capital. And when you, and when you lever them, they're very much higher than that even, which right. the, company, the company could run levered because it owns its real estate. So like I looked at this thing and trading it a, well into a double digit free cash flow yield. The CEO clearly knows how to deploy capital and has not only does he know how to, he has the opportunity to because it's this massive market that needs to be consolidated and he's really the buyer of choice. Yeah. Um, so I got involved in early 2018 when I launched the fund. Um, I forgot exactly when it was. I think it was like 
either mid 2018 or early 2019, the company started getting attacked by um, an anonymous short seller on Seeking Alpha and like a website. And, yeah. um, and those, those attacks by the short sellers led to the SEC and the board of the company opening up a dual investigation into the actions of the management team, um, one by the board and one by the SEC. And so the stock got, it was like an 18 month period where it was just brutal. No one, no one wanted to listen to the pitch, um, which I totally understood at the time while these investigations were ongoing, even though the company's auditor said that this was purely a disclosure issue, not a cash issue. And the company okay. said that as well. And so like, what the short report was alleging was that management was stealing from the company. Yeah. Um, what it turned out getting disclosed both by the SEC and by the internal board investigation was that the company just had a disclosure issue where the, the management team was getting certain perks that weren't appropriately disclosed in the 10K. They were expensed on the income statement. Yeah. The, cash, the cash flow that they reported was already after those perks that they were delivering to the management team but they just weren't disclosing those perks adequately to shareholders. And an example, a couple examples of that are um, the company was buying tables for its restaurant concept um, from the CEO's brother's furniture company, I believe. And um, the, there was a board member whose brother was the, the manager or the president of the club division of the company, which they didn't disclose. And that's a related party if you have a board member. Right, right, right. And so. So those are the types of things that have to be disclosed. Um, right when that issue started getting resolved with the internal review, COVID hit and people were like, man, like this company is done for now. Like yeah. their, clubs, their clubs aren't going to be able to be open all throughout COVID and they're screwed. They're going bankrupt. But like it shows you how resilient this biz business model is and how good it is. Um, the fact that during COVID they were cash flow positive, unlike a lot of other restaurants, unlike a bars, unlike movie theaters, retailers, like these guys have almost no fixed costs. They own a vast majority of their real estate. And when they operate at 30% occupancy, they could staff much lower levels. They don't buy alcohol unless they're serving it to people. And so like their variable costs are very high and there's no competition, um, right? Like typically if you have retail bars, typical nightclubs that aren't gentlemen's clubs, um, restaurants, like if the returns are good, competition will show up and compete those returns away. No yeah. one wants new gentlemen's clubs in their backyard. So local municipalities don't really grant new licenses to competition. So like if the new, the hot club in Vegas changes every five years, like the hot gentlemen's club in any given city doesn't change every five years. It's the same one for decades and decades and decades. And so like when they're running a 30% occupancy, it's not like that 30% occupancy is getting diluted across all these businesses that are competing for less occupancy. They still have the core customer base. And so they were generating cash. They survived uh, COVID and now um, we're off to the races. I mean, I think that they'll probably do mid fours of free cash flow per share just with the assets they own on a normalized basis. So everything they own, if it was open at 100% occupancy today, which we'll get there in the next few months, hopefully once everyone's vaccinated, you're looking at a mid fours of free cash flow per share. Um, the stocks are like 40 bucks. So you're still looking at a single digit free cash flow multiple. Um, they're not that levered. They have debt, but it's mostly mortgage debt and they own their real estate. So it's, I don't, I don't view it as real leverage. I mean, if they lease the properties and had no debt, would it be any different? I think they're in a better position to own the real estate. Yeah. Uh, 
And, um, and I think they can grow that four bucks of 450 of free cash flow per share at probably 25% plus for as far as the eye can see. And so you could be looking at 10 bucks of free cash flow per share, not too far out. And, um, and if they, if they actually execute against that, I think it's very likely people won't put 10 times free cash flow on it anymore because a business that proves that it can compound free cash flow per share from like a dollar to ten dollars over like a 15 year period deserves a higher multiple. And I think that people will will give it that multiple over time. It becomes a compounder bro on Twitter. That's exactly. that's exactly and then and then and then it gets 35, 45 times earnings. But so one of the from just just from an outside looking in, I think this is interesting, right? Because it seems that you came across this headwind with Rick in a different way than you did with Expel. And it's almost, you know, it's, it's kind of a testament to you learning from that Expel, you know, mistake, if you want to call it a mistake, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, you saw this report and short reports can be very, you know, scary, intimidating and stuff like that. But, you know, I don't know if you sold any of that or stuff, but it sounded like you remained firm in your convictions. And I just think that's, you know, a great example of you learning from, from that past, but I do want to get your take on how you weigh these uh, probabilistically in terms of management and how they act. And, you know, I'm looking at, there's a seeking alpha post from March of 2020. Um, and there's just like a couple things with the management, like you mentioned, how they didn't disclose things. One of the things I thought was interesting was that they had some of the management received automobile expense compensation. So, you know, some of them would get like $18,000 in automobile expense. The CFO got 24000 and then Travis Reese got 56,000 in automobile expense. Um, and then the other big thing that they said is that during 2019, uh, Philip Marshall, the CFO, got a $30,000 raise during this time when the SEC was investigating them. So from an outsider looking in, how do you weigh that in terms of the long-term future of the business? Is it like you know what, I'm just going to kind of swallow that. I know that that's not optically good, but I don't think that it's long-term detrimental to the business. Is that kind of how you were thinking about it? Yeah, I think, look, um, this management team has done an incredible job for shareholders. Um, they're important They're important employees of the business. Um, I think that without them, the business would be worth less than what it's worth today. And so I think it's important to keep them motivated and retain them. And whether you want to retain them by giving them a night's allowance for a car or by giving them cash raises, I don't think they're a comp, you know, just looking at it does not seem egregious on on an absolute basis. Like if you think that their raise is a little bit too high, I can argue for or against that, 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 that point. But um, the reality is the CEO has a vast majority of his net worth in the stock. He hasn't sold stock in years. After he implemented the capital allocation policy, the stock went from like 10 bucks to like 30 bucks. He didn't sell a single share. Um, And he is highly motivated to get the stock price higher. Like this is an empire that he sees the vision of what this could look like in three, five, 10 years. And I think he wants to be the one to take it there. And I think the vision that he sees is the one that I see. And I've tried conveying to other people who got involved in the story. And and so, yeah, I'm trying not to focus on the minutiae of, you know, they've got an $18,000 raise or a car allowance here or there. Um, the, the bottom line is when the short report came out, I didn't sell stock. I, in fact, after multiple conversations with the company and after 
there were certain points throughout the investigations where, where the findings were starting to get dribbled out by press releases. And the most important thing I was focused on was not what you haven't disclosed, but whether what you haven't disclosed is already fully reflected in the income statement and cash right. flow statement, right. and whether it's and whether it's it shows that a lack of judgment, of moral judgment, where you stole from the company, or was yeah. it just stuff that, whatever? Every management team does these types of things, and maybe some disclose it, maybe some don't. But like, I think if you did an internal review of any company in the S and P five hundred or the Russell, you would find that CEOs of the companies use the U.S. Open tickets that their company has for their kids. <laughs> And yeah. maybe they'll use the corporate jet to go visit friends. And maybe they use, they expense, you know, an Uber when they were actually going to visit, I don't know, to visit a friend somewhere. And like, people do that. People do yeah. that. I don't think that shows such a lack of moral judgment that like a company is not worthy of investing in or else we wouldn't invest right. in any business. I think people do that type of stuff. But I was focused on, did you steal from the company? And did you not account for these transactions properly? If you expense them properly, free cash flow is not changing, earnings aren't changing, the balance sheet isn't changing, and you didn't steal from the company, you're not going to jail and you're not getting, you know, fined by the SEC or fired from your job by the SEC. Like, I'm fine with whatever comes out, especially when the stock at that point was trading at five times free cash flow. Yeah. And um, and so yeah, I, not only did I not sell my position, I was adding to it over time as these data points kind of incrementally came out. And it helps that I've had a four-year relationship with this management team. I have yeah. good rapport with them. Um, I was able to have conversations with them. And historically, over the last four plus years, whenever they've told me things that I wasn't sure if what they said was going to play out, it played out exactly as they said. I mean, when they say we're going to do X, X typically happens. When they say they're yeah. going to do Y, Y typically happens. And so I have a sense of confidence and trust with them. And when they were like, look, this is going to check out, like we're going to have to add disclosure, but nothing's going to get restated accounting wise. And, th and then those things started to play out. As they said, I had confidence to add the position. So, Got it. I mean, that's just another benefit of being a long-term shareholder is that they do have that, um, not only patience, but they have that level of vulnerability and openness with you because they know that you're also in it for the long term. You're not just some someone trying to make a quick buck, I guess. Yeah, you have you have rapport with them. And look, I think they I think the management teams I I my core positions typically I'm very active, um, not only with the company of just giving them suggestions on how I think they should they could be doing better with investor communication, of whether I like what they're doing with their capital allocation. But I'm also, I'm, I would like to say I'm helpful on the IR front as well. You know, I pitch the idea to anyone who will listen and, and, and I, I, I help kind of pitch it and get people comfortable with the story. I've gotten a lot of people involved in RCI. I've gotten a lot of people involved in other names I'm involved with. And mm -hmm. so like they're appreciative of that feedback that I give them on how they could be better from a communication standpoint, how they could be better from a capital allocation standpoint. And that allows them to have a more open and honest dialogue with me as well. You know, there's a rapport that's built over time. And I think it's great to have positions that you feel like you're an insider almost yeah. in terms of like being able to have open and frank um, conversations. Earlier, you mentioned that you're not big enough yet to run an activist campaign, but just from talking to you, it sounds like that's something that wouldn't be off the table in the future. Should you scale to that? Like, it almost seems like you've got a good personality for it. You've also got the knowledge and I think it's something that 
maybe you'd be good at. Is it is that is that something that you've thought about? And maybe maybe that's even something that you would like to see yourself in is almost like this, you know, I don't want to compare you to, you know, someone you don't want to be compared to, but almost like an Ackman slash Carl Icahn figure in these companies one day. You're making me blush. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, look, I um I like being on a boat where the management team is rowing in the same direction as me. And for the most part, if I sense that they're not rowing the same direction as me, I just, I, I would rather not get on the boat. Yeah. Um, there be very unique and special circumstances where um, there's a business that's just so undervalued and a very small change can unlock a lot of that value. Or if I'm already on the boat and they, and they were rowing in the same direction, but now they, they start rowing in the exact opposite direction and I need to protect my partnership capital, like I'll, I would never rule anything like that out, but that's, it's not my personality to be confrontational. So it's yeah. not something I like go to sleep thinking about how I'm going to do that. <laughs> I, I like, I, I like from an ESG standpoint, I like everyone winning together from a, from a portfolio manager standpoint. I like when my LPs and I win together. Um, I want for a business, I want the customers to win, the shareholders to win, the suppliers, the employees. Like, I just like when everyone's happy and like activist campaigns typically don't lead to everyone being happy. And so yeah. to the extent I could avoid them, I will. And if I ever have to get involved, I'll probably do it very selectively. But um, yeah. yeah, that's not that's not on the agenda right now. It's kind of the number yeah. one priority. I get that. But just how badass would it be to pull a car icon and buy a huge block of shares and just be like, yep, we're doing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure, That'd be I'm, sure awesome. he feels, I'm sure he feels good on those nights sometimes. Yeah. So another area that you've, really rang the gong on that I don't think anybody else has actually brought this thesis to my attention or just, you know, I haven't really seen it besides what you've discussed it and it's water, water sports, whether that's boating, jet skiing, all that kind of stuff. And COVID has been a huge, huge tailwind for this industry and you nailed it with Mastercraft. And I think you were on, were you on Bobby Craft's podcast? Were you on his uh, microcap? podcast yeah and i think that's i think that's where i heard your mastercraft pitch and i remember listening to it, i was like you know what that's a good pitch i understand it i live in annapolis which is you know sailboat capital of the world i see it every day i'm like this kind of makes sense and like my friend not going into collector early enough i didn't follow you into mastercraft but talk us uh, you know talk to us about that whole thesis and where you see that playing out over the next you know 18 12 24 months yeah so um I own uh, Mastercraft and Malibu um, and also Brunswick Corporation, which are, they're all, they all kind of play on the same boating theme. Um, previously, I was only in Mastercraft at that point when I was doing the, 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 the Bobby Craft um, interview. But the basic thesis when I got involved with these, which was pre-COVID, um, yeah. was that these are incredibly good businesses and they're selling for really attractive valuations. So the ski and wake boat industry or market, it's it's a three-player market. Those three players basically control like 75 or 80% of the ski and wake boat market. Um, they, because it's a three-player market, they don't really compete on price. They compete on features, functionality, design, branding. And so um, their margins are really good because they don't compete on price and they take price, they take pricing up almost every year. I like charging more for the same widget, but by making the widgets cooler and cooler every year. So their prices yeah. go up almost every year. Their margins are good. 
um, in terms of the industry volumes, the skiing awake boat market grows volumes a few percent every year, two, 3%. The overall boating market is basically flat or has been flat for a very long period of time. But within the boating market, skiing awake is taking share. People are just, they like leading more active lifestyles. They want to wake surf. They want to wakeboard. They want to water ski. And these boats look cool. People want oh, to take yeah. pictures. People want to take pictures doing this stuff and they want to put it on Instagram. You know, they want to be more active and they want everyone to know that they're more active. And not only that, they want to do it on one of the three brands that matter because no one wants to be the cheap guy on the lake that went out and bought it, the, the no-name boat that no one's ever heard of. So the brands matter. So you have a sustainable end market yep. with, with, with secularly growing units. You have competitively growing ASPs pricing because there's no competition really. They just take pricing up every year. And so you have this great formula for like mid to high single digit top line growth for a business that requires almost no incremental capital or expenses to grow that top line. They're very capital efficient. And so like their earnings per share and free cash flow per share grow at very nice rates. I mean, yeah. Malibu is growing its earnings per share at like a teen, you know, 15 to 20% a year, they grow it on average. Um, and you were, and you're buying these at like eight, nine, 10 times earnings and earnings equal free cash flow. Um, they don't require a lot of capital to grow because they're actually a negative working capital business. They get paid by the dealers. The second they're done producing the boat, they get paid by the dealer. They ship it to the dealer. They get paid. They don't pay the guys that they bought the parts from to build the boat for like three months after they, they get the money from the dealer. So they have a negative working capital dynamic requires very little capex to grow um and so the returns on capital are really high the free cash flow conversion is really good they have no underfunded pensions they have no big union problems they have no big minimum purchase commitments like any problem that you name for like an auto oem for example they don't have an auto oem has positive working capital they not only do they not have the negative working capital they actually have to finance their customers like if you're buying a gm car GM has to figure out a way to get you the money. So a lot of a lot of auto manufacturers actually have FinCos where they're they're taking their earnings, their profits from the car sale and deploying it into the FinCo to help you buy the car from them. So like they can't even touch a lot of the cash they're earning. They don't have that at Malibu Mastercraft. They don't have all these pensions. They don't have these unions. They don't have these huge plants that require a lot of capital. So they don't have any of those things, but they trade at like multiples like the, oh, and they also have growth, whereas like auto units aren't really growing, right, globally. Um, and so they don't have any of those, that hair. I think that they're secularly benefiting businesses that can grow earnings per share and free cash flow per share for a very long period of time and nice rates that you were able to buy at like 10 times earnings, more or less. Um, during COVID, it did get scary because for a point in time there, you're like, okay, we're going to go into a bad recession. A, everyone has to shut manufacturing down for who knows how long. So you're going to generate zero, you're going to generate zero revenue for that period. And once you restart your production, no one's going to have money to buy a boat. Like the first thing you cut in a recession is discretionary big purchases like a boat. And that's what's typically happened in recessions, but especially these types of boats. Cause these things, I mean, it's not like your John boat going out fishing on a 10 foot. No, you know, these are expensive aluminum. boats. Yeah. yeah. These are like hundred thousand dollar plus boats. Oh yeah. And so, and so, um, it got scary. Um, and, but like very early on, I remember emailing the management teams and being like, I know in a typical recession, people cut their boat spending, 
But here, if you can't do any other traveling and you yep. can't be in restaurants and you can't be go to concerts and like you don't want to be around other people in a crowded park outside, like isn't boating the one place you can go with your family and feel safe and be outside and still do something fun like summer vacation? Yep. People, you know, people aren't flying to Europe. People aren't flying to yep. the Caribbean. People aren't. And they were like, yeah, we think that might be accurate, but we just don't know yet. Yeah. And I was, I was like on top of it because I was, the fund had an, inv an investment in it. And there's a lot of public data points you can read. You can see used boat pricing, which it, it gives you a good indication of like whether supply, if there's an oversupply of used boats, used boat pricing comes down. It means people might be not buying, people might not be buying as many new boats. Um, used boat pricing tightened up very quickly. There's online message boards and forums where you can go and like see what people are talking about. I mean, these are like the people who own Malibu's and Mastercraft, they've been owning Malibu's and Mastercraft for like decades. That's the, their family. If you're a Malibu family, you're a Malibu family. You go on the message boards and you talk to all the other Malibu families about this upgrade you got to your paint job. And everyone's yeah. like, oh, I got that one too. Like, it's so cool. Oh, I'm thinking of upgrading my boat. And someone's like, have you thought about getting a Mastercraft? And they're like, hell no, I'm, I'm not getting a Mastercraft. I'm a Malibu guy. So like you can go on these message boards and see people are talking about upgrading their boats, getting new boats, Yep. saying, oh my God, I can't upgrade my boat because my dealer doesn't even have anything in stock for me. You, yeah. had, you had the boat dealers coming out and announcing their comps being through the roof. It was nutty. The comps were yeah. nutty. <laughs> yeah, the comps were nutty. The, they didn't even have to discount. So like, Typically, like you have some pockets of the country where like demand might be a little weaker, some areas might demand might be a little stronger. So there's discounting in some part of the country, no discounting other parts. There were no discounts anywhere. Their gross margins expanded through the roof. Um, their unit volumes volumes were through the roof, and like production was shut down and about to turn back on. But like they were depleting all the inventory and stock. So now you're in this situation where like all these positive dynamics that I touched on of why this is a secularly growing end market for Ski and Wake in particular. And there's also a dynamic for why I think Brunswick is in a good place as well. But for Ski and Wake in particular, you have all these dynamics for why I think they're secularly growing businesses. But now you have this kind of like two year replenishment period where even if the retail demand over the next year and a half, two years is just meh, which I don't think it will be. I think you're gonna see a continuation of the strong demand. Yeah. Um, even if it's just meh, the dealers just need to order a lot more boats just to restock their inventory. And I don't think demand is just going to be mad because COVID is still going to be around through next summer. People are still going to want to stay local and not be in big groups. And you had this weird dynamic where a lot of the boat demand came from first time boat buyers this time around, which means that a lot of the people who were looking to replace their boats didn't replace them last year. So you have pent up replacement demand from people who would have historically replaced their boats last year coming into next summer's replacement cycle. And you have people who were first time boat buyers who look to upgrade usually sooner than a typical boat buyer as they figure out what kind of boat they want. They upgrade, they upgrade typically a little bit sooner and they get their friends to join because they're like, wow, hey neighbor, hey friend, look how much fun I'm having on this boat. So they have kind of this pull in of like additional demand. So. I think there's a lot of reasons why demand won't fall off. In addition, the retailers need to replenish their, their showrooms. And so like that look is as good as it gets for these guys over the next two years. And the valuations are still very attractive in my opinion. Um, I mean, I'm looking at, I'm looking at Malibu right now and it's trading 23 times earnings 
right now. And if you, you know, if it's growing, call it, you know, 15 high double digits, 15, you 18. Must, you, must be looking, you must be looking at trailing earnings when they were sh- partially shut down, right? I'm on, I'm on trading view right now. So bear in mind, yeah. any data there is going to be. Yeah. Sketch. So they, um, yeah, this is, this is, this is TTM. So, yeah. So, so they were shut down. They were shut down. Um, I should go to Ticker, which sponsors my freaking podcast. So Ticker.com. On a forward basis, they're probably selling for like 12 or 13 times earnings. Which is still super attractive. Yeah. For a a business that will compound its earnings per share at 20% a year for the next five years, which I think they will, being able to buy it at 13 times earnings, like you let assume you hold the multiple, you make 20% a year. If the, if the multiple re-rates to what I think is a more fair multiple for this type of business, you can make 20% plus IRRs. And if the multiple derates back to like where it was a few months ago, which was the low double digits, 10, 11 times, you probably make a team's return. Um, right. So I think the multiple is more likely to go up than down as people start to appreciate all these characteristics that I've touched on. But even if I'm wrong, I still think we do well from here. Yeah, I've got... 11 times EV to EBIT on a next 12 month basis, which is pretty sweet. Not going to lie. That's not bad, especially for how, how much it's grown. That's the crazy part. So yeah. you're getting multiple expansion plus revenue growth and, 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 and earnings growth. And I kind of want to end this conversation. I mean, we're blown by the hour and a half, which I think is great, but I want to end this conversation with you started your journey in kind of the PE space, private equity space, uh, startup hedge fund space. And I want to tail, you know, wrap, wrap this conversation around alternative asset managers as investments. And in particular, KKR. Um, I have not touched alternative asset managers. I, it's not that I don't think I have a circle of competence around them. It's just, they've never really appeared, appealed to me as an attractive thing to learn. And maybe that's just cause I'm, I don't, I don't see it the way I should see it. Uh, but walk us, walk us through your KKR thesis again. How'd you find it? And how did you think about that? And maybe what you learned in your private equity days and maybe the challenges of a PE firm helped you understand the competitive advantages of KKR. Yeah, I've been following the space for a very long time. I worked in, a, in, a, in private equity, so I got to really appreciate how great of a mousetrap they operate in. Um, I think stepping back, the high-level thesis for any of these alternative asset managers, whether it's KKR, Apollo, Blackstone, Brookfield, is that institutional capital, pensions, um, endowments, whatever, are are chasing returns. In a low rate world, they're chasing returns more and more aggressively because they need to hit certain levels of returns to fund their obligations over time. And so those returns are becoming less and less available in public markets. And so they're chasing alternative investments, whether that's leveraged private equity, leveraged infrastructure, real estate, um, leverage credit funds. And so more and more of capital is chasing these alternative strategies. Mm-hmm. And at the same time that's happening, so you have more and more capital going to these alternative strategies every year. At the same time that's happening, the pensions and endowments realized that they were sprinkling their money across too many managers and it diluted their performance. And not only that, it was just hard administratively to keep up with all these managers. Right. And, like the t- and the top managers were doing the best job anyway. And so they're like, okay, not only do we want to put more and more of our money in these alternative strategies, we want to put them with less and less managers. So what you have is this incredibly long and powerful tailwind 
of capital flowing to the big dogs in the space, you know, the KKRs, the Blackstones of the world. That's, that's a great backdrop under which to invest in anything you could buy at a reasonable valuation when the wind is at your back instead of at your face. Yeah. It's a great backdrop with which to invest. If you could buy, find something at a reasonable valuation where like these winds are just driving growth for as far as the eye can see, it's a great backdrop. Um, and KKR specifically was in this position where they started investing in these new strategies ahead of the AUM growth that came with these strategies. So call it 10, 15 years ago, they started developing, you know, an Asia private equity strategy, a European real estate strategy, a, a credit strategy, a growth equity strategy across all these geographies. And initially when they were doing that, they, um, they went and hired really good talent to see these strategies, right? Like you don't want to, you don't want to raise these funds and not do well. So you're going to pay top dollar to find the best talent to see them. Yep. Additionally, you don't have a track record doing this specific strategy. So you're going to have a hard time finding a big amount of capital to, to see these strategies. So what they did was they said, we're going to put up a bunch of our own capital in these strategies just to prove to people that we're serious and we're putting our money where, where our mouth is. So in the early days of these new strategies, they were putting up a lot more capital than they typically do in funds. And they were generating much lower margins than they typically do with mature funds because they didn't have a lot of fees, but they were paying a lot of salary and bonus money to all these investment professionals. So right. what you have now is what you have now is they're raising bigger and bigger successor funds. Like if you raise a $300 million fund one, maybe you're raising a $2 billion fund two and maybe an $8 billion fund three, but your, your headcount isn't really changing. So like the increased yeah. fees and the extra carry flow to the bottom line at a much greater rate than revenue. So like you had this dynamic where KKR was selling for a very reasonable valuation. Um, I, I think I would argue cheap valuation. And, um, and you had this dynamic where top line is probably going to grow at a teens clip as far as the eye can see. And earnings could grow at a faster clip than that for a couple of reasons. One, margins are going to go up. So er earnings should grow faster than revenue just for that reason. Number two, they're going to have a lot of capital that gets unlocked from these early investments they made in these strategies over the last 10 years. So they can accelerate capital deployment over the next few years, not into these strategies, but into acquisitions like they just did with General Atlantic or into stock buybacks, which they've opportunistically done um, during the trade war fears and again during the COVID fears. So like right. they're great capital allocators. They're able to deploy capital when when the market is selling off, they're buying back their stock. Um, and um, there's a, a little bit of a counter cyclical component to these where um, when the market sells off, they can deploy capital at better valuations, which will help them produce better forward returns, which means higher carry from their funds because they bought at lower valuations. Not only do you get higher carry, but you put your capital to work more quickly. So you could raise new funds that are bigger, even more quickly and grow your fee income more quickly. Get that so like, virtuous cycle going. Yeah. So when the market sells off, it's great. When the market's doing well, all your investments are doing great and you and you're can, getting more carry. Yeah. And you sell them and you're getting more carry. So like you're basically putting capital to work when the market's going down and you're selling stuff when the market's going up. And so like, there's always something for them to do that helps the long-term value of the business. Volatility is good for them. You have these tailwinds, you have a, a cheap overall valuation. Um, and the valuation was a little bit obscured because like they had this big book value, this, these big investments in their own deals that they were seeding all these strategies for that was not being appreciated by, by the market. 
they, hmm. so the way they report their adjusted earnings basically is they only account like if, if they invest a billion dollars in a deal yeah, and that billion, let's say on paper, it doubles. Now it's worth 2 billion, right? right? They don't recognize income for that. And let's say that 2 billion grows to 3 billion next year. They don't recognize income. They grow their book value on their balance sheet, but they don't account for that as earnings. Once they sell okay. it for 3 billion in two years, they'll yeah. take that $2 billion gain and, and recognize it all at once. But okay. because all because all these are very long holdings, they had all this accrued value on their balance sheet that they weren't recognizing as income that they weren't getting mm. credit for. And so like, if you gave them credit for that, I think I bought this at a single digit PE as well. So, and I, I still think, and I still think by the way, it trades for like my, in my view, it trades for 11 times my estimate of owner's earnings. And like, I'm happy to share that with you or anyone who wants to reach out to me, I'm happy to share that with them. Okay. Um, but yeah, I still think it trades for 11 times owner's earnings even today. After and that's 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 including that carry, or I guess not the carry, but the but the delta between when they bought and then the value of the investments. Yes, exactly. So so then stupid stupid question potentially, but I guess that would also work on the reverse side too. Like if they bought at a billion and then it got cut in half to five hundred million, they're not recognizing that loss on the income statement either. So is there right. a, is 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 they're there an element of it if it kind of balances out? Yeah, but they're not in the business of buying stuff for a billion and it being worth 500 million. Yes, occasionally yeah. they have losses, but in total, if you look at the 30 plus year history of their funds, on average, their investments go up over time and they wouldn't be in business if they didn't go up over time. Yeah. One of the beauties of private equity is that, and the reason, another reason why institutions love these is because when the market's down 50%, they mark to model. They don't mark to market. Oh, isn't and that the like, beauty of it? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're like, they're like, look, we're not for sellers. The terminal value of this business is where all the value sits, and nothing changes at the terminal value. So, like, I don't care that the market's down fifty percent. Like, if there's a public comp, maybe they, they have to factor that a little bit. But like, yeah, they're not nearly as volatile. Not nearly as volatile, and public equity managers and public credit managers do make bad decisions in periods where there is red flashing across their screen. Yeah. Sometimes the market's down 30% and you're convinced it's going down another 30 from here. And you're like, let me get out and get back in. And then it snaps back and you locked in your losses forever. That does not happen with private equity. So you actually eliminate the, the ability for managers to make dumb decisions. They, they, they're stuck with what they own. They have to live with it through the recovery. And historically, I think more value has been destroyed by active managers selling at the wrong times than holding on. So um, there's just a lot of beautiful things about this one. I think um, I still think they it probably holds the multiple from here and grows at a teens, you know, 15, 20% clip. And it maybe it gets the expansion and I think it deserves. And at that point, you know, you can make, you can make IRRs that are better than that. But um, so but how yeah. do you, how do you, how do you lose in this, in this case? Like, I mean, let's say three to five years from now, you and I are, having a conversation and you tell me, you say, you know what, Brandon, I lost on that KKR bet. Like how, how would that play out? What would, what would that look like? Yeah. One, the thing that keeps me up the most with this one is regulatory. So like if there's any major regulatory changes, which I monitor and I try to stay up on, but like if there are any major, major regulatory changes that make it not viable for private equity to invest the way they've invested, that would be bad for business. Um, and then the other one, which keeps me up less because they have such a long track record of being successful with this is if their performance starts to suffer across all their strategies, it right. would hurt their, it would hurt their ability to raise new funds. 
and um, and obviously that would hurt the terminal value of the business. So regulatory and weak performance. The weak performance worries me less because they're diversified across geographies, across strategies, and they have a ton of really smart investment professionals who've been doing it for a very long period of time, and they have a track record that speaks for itself. So um, those are really the two things I monitor most closely. If the track record starts going south and the investments start doing poorly, does it have the same negative virtuous cycle as it does with good investments where you start to perform poorly, people pull their money, which you know gets you less carry, less money to reinvest? So people, yeah, people can't really pull their money. These are committed vehicles for the most part, okay. but like they could, they could not commit to the next funds. And Got so it. if performance started to suffer, what would probably happen is you would see successor funds that are smaller than predecessor funds. So if fund, if fund five was like a $15 billion fund and five, six was a $12 billion fund and five, seven yeah. was fund seven was an $8 billion fund. That would be going in the wrong direction. Got it. And like, it would take a very long time for their revenue to actually start declining because they're still getting revenue from fund four while they're deploying fund five, right. while they're deploying fund six, right? Like you're getting revenue for the entire life of the fund, not just, so like, just because you deployed fund five and you're raising a smaller fund six, doesn't mean your revenue is going lower. It would take a very long period of time, but it obviously it would impact the multiple and it's going in the wrong direction. Right. No, but that is, that is so attractive that you can just work, you know, recur revenue for long periods of time, even if you've got short-term underperformance. I mean, I, I can, I can see why it's up so much since, uh, since gosh, it was down. I always love when I do these podcasts with guests and see their holdings. Like I always love going back to March and looking at the bottom tick and it was like 1550 and, uh, and now it's up over, now it's up over 40. So um, I pitched this, I think I pitched this, uh, last at, summer at manual or two summers ago at manual of ideas in the summer of 2019 yeah the manual of ideas uh wide moat conference the stock is at like 24 bucks and um and yeah i mean 24 then 41 now and i i haven't sold a share i've been adding along the way i still think it has a great outlook from here Nice. MOI wide mode. That is a conference I'd love to go to at some point. That's, that's, yeah. that's on the bucket list there. Yeah. So awesome. All right. Well, let's wrap up this podcast. This has been an hour and a half of awesome conversation. I've learned a lot. I know that uh, the peeps listening are going to learn so much too. Um, where can people go to find out more about you? I know you're active on Twitter. So a lot of the listeners honestly probably already follow you, but for those that don't, what's the handle there? Yeah, so the handle is one main capital, uh, the number one and the word main capital just spelled out. Um, it has my uh, email address and my website information on there as well. But the website for anyone who wants it is www.onemaincapital.com. You could find uh, my investor letters and my contact information there as well. And I uh, would love to hear from any of you guys with uh in particular, negative feedback on any of my theses, if you disagree, but um, any other questions, we'd love to hear them as well. What made you choose the name One Main Capital? Is it just the street you grew up on? It was uh, the first apartment my now wife and I lived in together. That was the address. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So then last question, ask every guest, if you could have dinner with one person, past or present, who would it be and why? And I sent you this, so I know that you saw it. <laughs> yes, you, you told me you were going to ask me, and I, I completely blanked on thinking about it. But I think I have a decent answer anyway. All right. But like, All right. But like, but take out the past component because I didn't. I didn't really. I didn't think about it like I should have. So I'll just okay. go with the present. 
Okay. And the president, I think, I think Bill Gates, I think he's awesome. That hasn't been said. We're we're like 60 episodes deep now and Bill Gates has not been mentioned. Yeah. I think he, he's proven himself to be a successful business person, um, but also a great technologist and great at philanthropy, which are like three of the coolest things you could ask for. And, um, and yeah, I'd love to pick his brain about so many topics. So uh, I don't even know where you would begin. Like, I mean, what, what, what would, what would be the first thing you'd ask him? Honestly? Oh man. (laughs) I'm putting you on the spot. Hardcore. Cause I, I I just like, there's so much. I I think I would ask him what technology he's most, um, most excited about over the next 20 years. Yeah. 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 It's it's awesome. I I think I could probably spend, you know, did you ever watch, um, the documentary? documentary? Yep. Yeah, oh, you know yeah. how he does like those alone weeks where he just goes and like spends. Oh, that cabin looks that, amazing. That cabin. I would go hang out with him in that cabin for a week. Yeah. You can awesome. tell him I said that too. You can tell yeah. him I said that. It doesn't have to be a secret between us now. Yeah. Well, no, next time I get Bill Gates on the podcast, I'll, <laughs> I'll let him know. <laughs> if I ever get Bill Gates on the podcast, then I'm definitely taking you to the cabin because at some point I've done something or I have not done something. I've stumbled into something incredible uh, to, to, to get the chance to talk to Bill Gates, but um, awesome. Well, this was such a great time. I, I mean, first, first time chatting with you and I, you know, I've, I've, I've read your letters for a long time. So you've been, you've been someone that I followed for over a couple of years. I'm glad we've had the chance to talk. So you're in Namark of one main capital. Thanks so much for coming on the show and I wish you the best of luck in 2021. Thank you, man.